We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. My name is Jari Bolander. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. I wanted to jump in quickly and let you know about the release of the audio version of my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, narrated by David A. Kanasser. If you want to support the show, you can buy it wherever audiobooks are sold. Links are also in the show notes. Now on to my guest for today, Doug Kadlicek, CEO of software development company Grio. Doug grew up in Silicon Valley and was drawn to programming and computers when he was young. In college, he shifted to an interest in biology and became a biological researcher. Eventually, he found his way back to software programming, joining the programming team of a company where he worked. This gave him a unique understanding of the programs he was working on and what researchers really needed. His focus ever since has been making sure the programs he builds work for the people who use them. Doug's worked at several companies as a software engineer, leading teams to develop programs. 12 years ago, he and some of his colleagues took the leap and founded Grio. Grio fo- focuses on developing software for the Internet of Things, a growing segment of the industry that connects the things we use in our daily lives to the Internet. Doug's approach is to keep things as simple as possible. He develops by iteration, having users test products, and fine-tuning the programs until they work well. 
He approaches sales with a similar attitude of curiosity. Take an interest in a potential client's problem and then figure out how you can help. Now, let's get better together. Doug Kadlicek, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jerry. So, Doug is someone that I met through Sutro. And the reason why I wanted to say that just up front is because um, I love it when I meet cool and interesting companies and people through what I do for a living. Um, you know, I'm in startup world, so that's can be sometimes, you know, pretty challenging because like not all the people I meet <laughs> kind of like, oh, I really don't want to work with them. Um, but, you know, I work with your team over at Grio uh, with Sutro. Uh, they're the ones that did the award-winning app, um, which is just a really beautiful app for the Sutro Smart Monitor, which I've talked about before. Uh, but before we get into all that craziness, I would love to hear the story on how you became who you are today. Like, well, that that is a long and uh, tangled road, I would say. So I, I grew up in Silicon Valley, uh, right in when the uh, kind of the computer industry was starting to boom. Um, so when I was in middle school, we started actually using computers and I started programming and really took an interest to that. Um, had some, um, you know, gifted programs that I was involved in um, where we would um, do some studies at uh, or do some, participate in classes at Hewlett Packard um, and other companies around uh, Silicon Valley. What, so what, really, uh, what town did you grow up in? Uh, San Jose. San Jose. Okay, cool. I grew up in Belmont. So just, okay, just nice. North. Yeah. So, yeah. The other side. Yeah. Yeah. We're uh, grew up in Silicon Valley too. So I'm super curious about this. Yeah. So that was, you know, there, it was just all, you know, computers and programming were really taking off when I was a kid and I took an interest. Um, so I did that, um, you know, through high school, took my programming classes. And like I said, I was in some extracurricular uh, gifted programs where we did a lot of things with uh, computers and, um, and and visiting other companies like IBM and stuff like that around the Valley, just had in learning about computing and, and actually the hardware as well. Um, and, um, you know, I, and I had that interest when I was a, a kid. And then actually when I went to college, I shifted gears. So I, I actually became a biology major in college. Um, I was kind of taking after, cause I didn't know what I wanted to do. My sister was a biologist. I'm like, well, that's, and she, you know, I thought that was kind of cool being a, a, she's a research scientist. And I was like, yeah, I think I want to do that. That sounds pretty neat. Um, so I, I did that. Basically, I got my um, bachelor's of science in um, biological sciences, and I went out looking for a job as a, a researcher in um, biology or um, biochemistry. So I actually, my first job was at a company called Dionics in Silicon Valley that made scientific instruments, and I was doing research on glycoproteins, um, doing um, high-performance liquid chromatography, and various um, protein analyses and things like that. Um, so um, an ion exchange chromatography, so very scientific stuff. Yeah, no, um, I, but what I worked at uh, Life Tech for a little bit. So I know all about those kind of machines. Yeah, so they're these big, complicated machines. And actually they used, um, and they were just starting actually at that time to use software to control them. 
and also to analyze the results from them. So when I was doing, um, and we were creating kind of a novel um, way to analyze glycoproteins and you know display the results. Um, and so I got, um, I, I had to do some, basically some programming to help build out the system that would like uh, display the results for the scientists after they, they run their samples and things. Um, and so I had that programming background that I mentioned before, and I was able to leverage that to, to help out on that aspect of it. And so, um, you know, so I always, I had my, you know, my fingers in there a little bit with the programming. I still, you know, my main job was, you know, running the, the experiments and, and analyzing results and writing, help assisting writing papers, contributing to papers uh, uh, for research. Um, but after a while, I realized that, you know, in order to advance uh, much further in the field, you know, I'd have to get my PhD uh, in, in, in some specialty in that area. Yep, yep. Um, and I also realized that my salary wasn't going to be, even if I got my PhD, my salary wasn't going to be that big compared to um, the people who are writing the software for these um, devices. Uh, so I... <clears throat> So I'd look to, you know, switch departments within the company. And, um, you know, I went to the VP of engineering there and asked them if I could get a job. And they made me jump through a bunch of hoops uh, to get into that. So I had to take all kinds of tests. Um, they grilled me probably harder than they do their, you know, normal candidates mm -hmm. for the job. And yeah. um, just to have to prove myself, I had to write programs and do some things. So, but they, I finally convinced them and I was able to switch over to be a software engineer um, there. And, you know, I did that for a few years um, and that was successful. And it was really good because I had this bridge between the, the researcher's knowledge and then the programming expertise. So it was, um, it was really interesting being able to like kind of apply some user interface design concepts and understanding uh, how the researchers need to use systems and, and, reference the data and so forth through the software. So that was um, a real interesting experience. Uh, at that same time, um, I ended up uh, moving to San Francisco. And this company, Dionyx, was based in Sunnyvale. And after maybe a year or two um, of commuting, I kind of said, you know what, I'm not going to do this anymore. And I looked for a software development job up in uh, San Francisco. And that got me into uh, the finance industry. So I was working for um, a bank uh, called Providian, which is now Capital One. Uh, and I actually um, wrote their first system that trans, um, they used to use uh, back in the day, everything, and some people use them still today, what are called green screens, which yep. are basically yep, the, yep. Yeah. are you familiar with that? Oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah, oh yeah. So anyways, you know, you go in and everybody's using this green screen to like process lost credit cards or, you know, some kind of complaint or, or whatever, issuing new cards, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they wanted to get a graphical user interface um, for these uh, folks that were working in the call centers uh, to make things easier for them to, to execute on and use. Uh, so that was my, that's what, what I was hired on for to, to lead that. And I was actually a lead developer and I had, um, a junior developer under me and, um, a QA person and was working with some of the marketing folks there. So that was kind of my first uh, leadership position in software where I was not just 
um, one of the, you know, kind of one of the teams. I actually was more like just a regular software engineer and a junior engineer when I started out at Dionics, but this was kind of an opportunity of advancement. So, um, <clears throat> so you know, when I was there at Providian, um, we created this application and, you know, we rolled it out and I was really starting to get more involved in uh, user interface development and design. Um, which back then, you know, now it's a little more specialized where you have UX, UI designers and things like that. But that really was just in the camp of developers back then. Um, so that was back in the uh, early to mid 90s as when this was taking place. And yeah, they were just that that specialty didn't really exist yet. So yeah, the, uh, the UX, UI was just like, you know, pipes around a button. I mean, <laughs> it was pretty awful. Yeah, I remember that. <clears throat> Yeah, but I really spent a lot of time um, doing like kind of user research and mm. actually sitting down with the the uh, call center employees and, and understanding what their problems were, what the bottlenecks were in their processes and trying to come up with unique uh, user interface solutions for them to help streamline, you know, their work, their everyday work. Um, and I would go in and we'd actually do some like we I wouldn't call it prototyping, but it's actually we would code something up. Um, we just deploy it out to like a limited subset of the call center employees, you know, watch them, observe them working with the software and get their feedback, see where they get stuck and then make modifications and uh, to the software and, you know, re and roll that back out. Um, and so kind of that was the iterative process for developing those user interfaces. And at the end of the day, um, you know, there was a room of about, uh, 200 people in this call center using your software and you can walk in and see everybody um, using the software that you created. And, you know, it's really um, was an empowering um, enthusiastic feeling just to, you know, get, get to see all these people using this thing that you created. So that really, um, yeah, it's, it never gets old. <laughs> never. Gets yeah. Old. So that, that, that felt really good. And, um, you know, that really kind of reinforced my commitment to, you know, building great things and, um, you know, user empathy, uh, working with, um, you know, people to, to build great software products. So, um, you know, as time went on, um, I moved, you know, I moved on, I worked there for a couple of years. Um, and then I had an opportunity uh, to do, to advance uh, to a role of a, a director role of director of engineering. And actually it kind of fell in my lap um, as these things kind of happened to do. So I, I was actually being originally hired just to be uh, an engineering manager and their director of engineering got another job while I was in the interview process. And they're like, Hey, you want to be the director of engineering? So um, and that was for a company called Outcome, uh, one of the kind of dot-com companies. Uh, they lasted for a few years. I think they actually, um, they actually, they they got purchased by another company. Um, but I, I stayed, I stuck around there for a couple of years. Um, and then I worked in a, and I got moved to another company as another director of engineering job um, and kind of went through and moved through the kind of, uh, and, you know, I spend a couple of years and kind of moving from company to company during this these dot-com days um, and finally landed at a company uh, called Zinio. And so um, at Zinio, I was a director of engineering again there. Um, and I met some really talented and I built a team up of um, about 12 on our, in our engineering department. We weren't, we weren't huge, you know, but it was a, a decent size engineering department. Um, and um, 
you know, we had some really talented individuals there and we decided, you know, kind of we're talking about among ourselves that this would be um, great to start our own consulting business. Um, so that's really where that seed got planted. Um, and so a couple of my lead engineers and myself uh, broke off. You know, we'd been talking about it for about a year or so. Um, and the time came, we would, we actually, there was, there's some uh, disruption in the kind of management structure there. They hired some um, new VP that was my new boss that I didn't really get along with. And so it's like, okay, yep. let's, let's do this. Yep. Yep. So, you always, you always quit your boss. <laughs> you already <laughs> ever quit the, or they ever quit the company. <clears throat> yeah. So, um, so at that time I was kind of, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about doing, you know, starting a consulting company and I was, I was kind of, you know, we, we didn't have a job really to do. So it's kind of hard to start with nothing. So it's, you know, I was looking around for a new director of engineering job and some company offered me a job and they were talking about how they're going to build this new product. And I have this opportunity to build a team and do all this stuff. And I kind of flipped it on them. And I said, you know what? I have a team ready. Why don't you contract us to do this work for you? And, you know, it'll be, we'll just be an external contractor for you to build this specific product. And then we'll, we can transition this to your internal team. Um, and they liked that idea because it was a little bit um, less risky for them than to hire all these full-time people and stuff for something that's an unproven product. Um, and so they went for that and that kind of, you know, that kickstart and it was a, it was a six figure job. So it was wow. a decent sized job. Yeah. Um, and that kind of kickstarted the company. So, you know, we weren't paying ourselves ourselves. We just kind of didn't give ourselves a salary to start out really. I think, you know, kind of to cover groceries basically. Um, and then so that would give us the opportunity to use that money to hire some people and grow the team a little bit. Um, and I, that is when I got my first experience in business development, you know, so um kind of, I took that role on for the company. And I think it, what's, was nice about it is that, you know, just my experience with people didn't really see me as like this, you know, kind of sleazy sales guy, because I didn't, I'm not really a sales guy, you know, I'm more of an engineer. So I can just like, I can talk with them, get really enthusiastic about what they're trying to do and then help them come up with solutions to their problems. You know, that's, that's pretty powerful because when you, when you talk the talk, and can walk the walk and you have more of a, I don't know what it's really called. I think it's more of like i I'm going to help you as opposed to I'm going to sell you. It seems to work better. Even, you know, even if they never <clears throat> like want to use you, the feeling, it feels better. I guess that's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, I like building things and creating things and solving problems and, you know, that's what these uh, people are coming to you with. They're coming to you with like a problem that needs to get solved, you know, and sometimes a lot of the time I give them a lot of great free advice, quite frankly, and, <laughs> you know, they and they end up, you know, maybe not working with us, but taking that or, you know, we'd create a proposal that kind of outlines an architecture for to solve their problem and how we would solve it, um, you know, as a proposal to them. And, you know, they decide not to go with us, but they have all this great information to kind of to run with something. Yeah. That happens. But, that's, that's the consulting gig. That's the way it works. Right. Yeah. Um, but you know, but also that, you know, a lot of times they'll, they'll remember that and they'll kind of like yeah. refer us to their, their, some other client or come back to us for work in the future. So that's great too. Um, but yeah, so, 
you know, just having that kind of technical level of involvement in that kind of um, business development process, sales process. So that was my role um, and has been my role, although, you know, I still do engineering and development work to this day. Oh, really? Uh, what, yeah. what percentage of your time are you slinging? Oh, code? It, it it varies from time to time. I, I I enjoy doing it, so I like to you know kind of keep my skills sharp. Um, recently, I've been doing a little bit of work in React um, and oh. some Node backend. Okay, uh, but um, and I've done React Native work as well and iOS, Android native um, app development. Um, more, more on the typically more on the front end of stuff than, right. than the back end, just because I was telling about my user interface experience and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, but yeah, but my primary role right now is marketing and sales at Creo. You know, I'm responsible for that. Um, and then um, yeah, I have another co-founder partner, Brad Johnson, who's in charge of operations and kind of runs, you know, hiring uh, management. Um, so we're kind of on the technical side as well, just keeping um, how projects are staffed and things like that. So that's, I, I don't know if that kind of tells you the <laughs> no. winding road to it the is. story of how we got to, to Grio here. No, no, it's it's a great story because I, I actually have uh, another friend that started off in biology and then moved to engineering, then moved to management. And, uh, and then I've been at a biotech company where the uh, the amount of like the way like a biotech biologist, researcher, biochemists, you know, uh, molecular biologist, how they do their research and was just so like, you know, not automated. There's just so many things that were wrong. And <laughs> it was funny because, you know, engineers are like, oh, well, we can solve any problem with code or hardware. And, you know, we have models and physics and these molecular biologists, they didn't have any of that. They're just like, yeah, we just sort of do stuff and see what happens. <laughs> so a lot of trial and error, which I always found super frustrating, but you know. Yeah, you'd be, you'd be surprised how many people come into software engineering from some other field, um, particularly a lot of people from the sciences actually migrate over. Um, there's a, you know, there's, you know, of course there's, you know, people with the kind of standard computer science background as well, but there are also, you know, quite a few people who, who uh, kind of changed direction after, after college or, you know, once they started initial career, actually my co-founder too, he, he was a biochemist or actually a chemist. He was a biochemistry major who went into chemistry that then, you know, went into software. So, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's so, cause I mean, the skill of software engineer is so useful in any field. I can't think of one field where knowing how to program, knowing how to analyze data, knowing how to write scripts, just understanding the mechanism to automate stuff is not beneficial. I mean, it's like the the molecular bot or the the company was Ion Torrent, which got bought by Life Technologies. Uh, I don't know remember how long ago, but yeah, I mean, we had have we had a bunch of bioinformatics software people, guys with you know PhDs and that stuff just like geniuses <laughs> they just couldn't even like they would explain some of this stuff to me i'd be like my eyes would just glaze over because <laughs> it but yeah. then they're like well how do we you know i was in charge of the the little dna sequencing chip so they're like well what is what's the chip physics of this and how does this work and how do, can we you know optimize so it was pretty it was pretty cool i mean that was the most cross disciplinary company i've ever worked for like there were 
chemists, biologists, mechanical engineering, fluid dynamics, software, hardware, semiconductors. I mean, it was just, it was insane how many things had to come together. And yeah, yeah it sounds a lot like dionics too, you yeah. know, because because instruments, it's kind of the same, of yeah. the same out. It's, they had it's hardware, firmware, yeah. you know, fluid dynamics, all this different stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Like microfluidics. You're like, what's that? <laughs> you know, <laughs> or they had guys that were uh, surface chemists. I don't know if you know what a surface chemist is. Literally the chemistry of surfaces and how surfaces interact with each other mm-hmm. at the microscopic level. And, and these guys are at a whole other plane. <laughs> like, what do you do? Like, you know, so no, it's really cool. Hey, um, when you were a kid, were you, did you ever um, go to the homebrew computer club? I did not go to the homebrew computer club. Oh, wow. That was, we uh, had some, uh, there was a local computer building club that we had where they basically, we, you know, built PCs from scratch, um, which I did that for, I think for a summer, I was involved in that when I was probably about 10 or 11. Yeah. My first job, uh, my first job in technology, they act where they actually paid me was to write. Uh, a computer program for the Commodore 64 and it was a user interface. <laughs> it was so clunky to uh, categorize what was on the, you know, eight and a half or the, yeah, the eight and a half inch discs. Remember those eight and a half inch discs Floppy, yeah. in the yeah. floppies. And so, yeah, they, they got, they bought me a hard drive and I think they paid me for this code that would basically, you know, it was like a menu of what was on the disc. Yeah, we're kind of dating ourselves here a little bit. <laughs> a little but, uh, bit, yeah. A little bit. Yeah, well, I remember, too, when I was a kid, it's like going into, this will really date me, but going into the Radio Shack and yep. having the cassette tape to, like, yep. record your program and yep. and play it back and on there. So yep. um, that was, uh, yeah, back, that was back in the day. I was, yeah, a long time ago. I was so naive. <laughs> That I thought you had to put it back on after you read it. <laughs> so <laughs> every time I'd read it, and I remember in, in uh, Commodore 64, com, uh, Commodore uh, language, it was like load the program, comma, eight, comma, one, which was like binary, right? So mm-hmm. that I would load it. And then I'm like, well, I guess I got to put it back. <laughs> so I'd go <laughs> save and save the same thing. Like I would no clue that, no, it's on there forever. Don't, you know, anyway, <laughs> that just goes to show you, you know, how... I wouldn't call us old, how experienced we are. But more importantly, I really appreciate all the tools and the technology that now that the, this generation of not only software engineers, but entrepreneurs get to use. I mean, could you imagine back when we were kids doing all this stuff, trying to do some of the things that you can do now by no code or Amazon web services? I mean, it's amazing the amount of things that you can just build. It's It's insane. Well, yeah, there's just a lot of layers of abstraction that have been put upon programming where you, you know, back in the day, you're almost, um, you know, programming directly against hardware, where now, you you know, there's, you know, these these languages are um, really abstracted where you can use, you know, componentized and you can um, do things that are at a much higher level um, and not, you you don't have to, you don't have to know all the different levels of the system where, Whereas, you know, 
back when things were just getting started, you really had to know about, you know, memory and, you know, how to allocate memory, not to over, you know, overwrite different you know, memory allocations and things like that with like C languages and or assembly. Um, I remember yeah, or assembly, programming yeah. in assembly. I remember that. That was, you know, the 64 in Commodore 64 was 64K of memory. Like, wow, how could you ever fill that up with a program? <laughs> you know, well, it was pretty cool. I mean, did, how is that? So I always love to understand like how that experience helps you nowadays, right? I mean, I know some of it's, you know, dated experience, but how, how, how was coming up in an industry helpful, you know, starting Grio, the business and, you know, how, how does that kind of guide the, the way you run it now? Well, I think one thing that's helpful from that, just those experiences, is trying to keep things as simple as possible um, and not trying to overcomplicate things. Um, it's really easy to make things like complicated and sophisticated and overdoing it. And because it's, you know, it's almost made easier to do, but that makes, when you have those, those complexities, it, um, it can complicate your business and it can complicate, you know, you know, like it, it, at a lot of different levels, it can add complications to things, right. Just from how you run your business, you want to keep things simple, how you run a project, how you, you know, write your code or design your user interfaces, um, you know, start with the simplest thing possible and then, um, you know, only make it uh, more complicated as you need it. Um, and that's, you know, some of the lessons you learn from like having these systems where, you know, things are, you know, by nature, you start off simple because the complexity, you have to build that complexity from scratch. And, um, you know, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. Whereas now like some of that complexity can, you can throw that in, um, a lot easier because there's just other things. These things are provided for you that are, are, you know, inherently complex. So, you know, just being careful about that. Um, I think that's a good lesson that, you know, that I've learned just from uh, growing up in these different uh, environments. Yeah. I've, I've also found that people that program hardware or build hardware are a lot more of that mindset of keeping it simple and making sure that, you know, things fit within the realm of possibility. Because when, when you don't know how it's built, then it's just like, oh, we just would fix it in code or, oh, we'll just throw more memory at it or whatever. And I, I just remember like all the, the people that I know that like built hardware, designed it, and then had to program it were very conscious of what you just said. Like, oh, we need to make sure we don't do anything that's going to make this thing go squirrely. And, and they knew where, where to make, where, what would happen if it went squirrely. I think that was the other thing. So, you know, y your experience on the hardware side um, and keeping it simple on the programming side, do you see that as a big benefit to like when you approach, I, I know you guys are now getting into uh, internet of things and IOT devices, which is another layer of complexity for just a normal software thing. Has, how's that been, you know, trying to grapple with all that as, as you know, um, Sutro is sort of an a home, I, smart home IOT device and the complexity of that's pretty epic. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a lot of, you know, in IOT, there's a lot of uh, moving parts. You have, you know, the hardware, you have firmware, you have software, you have communication layer, you have, you know, API services, kind of your edge, you have cloud storage, you have, you know, mobile apps for, you know, rendering and controlling the devices. So, 
there's, you know, there you with you have enough complexity there already. So trying to not, you know, um, you know, trying to to identify patterns and, and keep consistent patterns across things um, is really important. So I, you know, there's, you know, just trying to, uh, you know, and obviously, like I said, you know, kind of just um, reiterating, just not overcomplicating things because it's it, it's easy to do, you know, and trying to adhere to standards where you can as possible. Um, is always a good idea. I also I also find that you know taking an iterative iterative approach to things um, is helpful. So, you know you know like and I kind of um, mentioned this earlier, just like for like when we're I was working at Providian and doing kind of that user interface design and development, and you know doing uh, kind of prototyping and working with people on that. The same thing can go with other projects as well. You know, so you know try something out. Don't. Don't go too crazy trying to build the whole solution and get the feedback and, you know, loop on that and, and iterate and improve. So that's really um, an important aspect, of, you know, and that's even, you know, it applies at all levels, like from a company level down to a project, down to a feature level uh, for, for a product. So oh, you can... Yeah. For sure. You can apply that at all levels of your organization. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that's one of the things that, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs, especially, I mean, that that's kind of the whole minimum viable product idea. Um, <clears throat> and I know that a lot of people talk about that uh, and how it works. And, and I know that um, at times, I mean, that's clearly an iterative process. And I'm always impressed by people that can kind of get that right, that first part right to validate the idea. Because even though it is a lot easier to develop stuff, a lot easier to like put out, especially software products, uh, to know that you're, it's actually going to work, you know, or people are going to pay you for it, which I think is the more important thing. Uh, have, have you, have you guys found a way, a, like a process or a better way to do that? Because I know a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with this. I hear about it a lot from not only technical co-founders, but non-technical co-founders where, Hey, I got this idea. I think there's a market. I got to now go to like you guys, like a griot, or I'm going to hack together something. Um, and I could spend a lot of money, waste a lot of time and money not getting it right. So any advice yeah, on I that, on how you do tackle that? Yeah, we actually have a um, something called a user story workshop that we offer at Grio. So it's basically, um, you know, with, with uh, you know, entrepreneurs who are starting up and have a product idea, um, it's taking that idea, identifying, you know, who their users are um, and um, what their goals are and kind of marrying those two together in a series of workshops. Uh, we go through some design thinking exercises and, um, you know, kind of really um, brainstorm of like how we can, you know, um, add value for these users and get them to the goals that you're trying to succeed with your product idea. You know, and, you know, that's that's even before building out a prototype or anything. So, you know, just trying to validate the idea, poke holes in it, um, you know, we really critically think about what you're trying to do and how to achieve that um, in a variety of um, different um, manners, just, you know, using these just design thinking exercises, um, some like the five whys. I don't know if you've heard about that. Oh, yeah, before. I was. Yeah, I was in the semiconductor industry. So five why was part of our uh, failure, uh, FMEA, failure mode effect analysis stuff, and are part of our 8D methodology for, you know, figuring out how things failed. I mean, yeah, I, I, it's, it's if, if 
it's sort of like the whole uh, Six Sigma kind of mentality. Um, but yeah, the, the Five Whys is a really great one. 8D, Eight Disciplines from the Automotive Industry is another one. Mm-hmm. We used to do uh, uh, FM, you know, failure mode effect analysis was another one that was really good for like mission critical stuff. So, oh, if you've got a an etcher, like that's in a semiconductor speak, it etches silicon and it's got, you know, <laughs> all these nasty acids in it. And what happens if that shuts down? Will it blow up? You know, that was sort of the, the level of it. So cool. Yeah. And we, you know, we use that exercise as long as well as some others, you know, to apply to more like um, validating a, a product ideas of like, you know, why, you know, why is this relevant? And if, if, if that, you know, and then kind of dig at that, those different levels uh, to try to really extract the value and make sure that um, that's validated for your product. Um, and then, you know, coming up with various um, solutions uh, as well out of that, those exercises. So, um, you know, and then after, after that, you know, that gets us to a good solid foundation for building out like an application prototype um, that we can uh, put in front of potential users and do some testing, user testing in front of too. And that would be even before uh, we code up a solution. This can be um, either clickable prototypes or paper prototypes um, where we get a, uh, you know, we're validating the, the value proposition for these products or key concepts and features of these products. Is that, so, so is that the, this prototyping phase? How, what's been the feedback? Cause one of the things that I always hear, um, you know, and it depends on who you talk to, but I always hear that it's better to build something and try to sell it than it is to just prototype your way to, you know, not really getting to the end game. Um, I, I can see for various other things where it's sort of easy to do, but my guess is for IOT type projects, where there's hardware involved, that's probably a little more challenging. Yeah. For an IOT project, this would be more for um, if there's a kind of mobile application component to the uh, IOT for like the, the user, whether what the user is interacting with. Mm -hmm. So um, there, there actually, you know, there can be, you know, there, there are user interfaces actually even on the Sutro project, right on the hardware itself. Yeah. Itself is very minimal, but there is some, there is some uh, user interfaces there, but, um, you know, but uh, we're we're more focused on the software side of the um, IoT play. Um, so yeah, but you know, you're right. You know, you're not going to do user testing on like um, APIs or something like that typically. <laughs> but but from just like a um, from a product standpoint, um, from the consumer, especially if it's a consumer facing product, where you know, take something like Nest or something like yeah, that, right? Exactly. You would Good. you know, it would Good you would want to have some feedback of how you you know that that user interface is going to work before you, uh, you know, that's a key component of the solution is kind of this mobile app um, to control your devices or, you know, so those are really important aspects that you want to get right. Um, That doesn't necessarily mean that, um, you know, that's, you know, that, that um, is going to kill the product or anything like that. Like you're going to decide not to do it at all, but you need to have a solid uh, foundation on that because that's going to be a key, um, that's going to be what you're, you know, that's the face of the product, right? Right, right. So, because that's what the people are going to be interacting with and this is basically how you're going to be selling that product. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, agreed. I mean, and you know, what's interesting about IoT and smart home automation, which has been around for a long time, honestly, hasn't really seen any real traction. Um, 
but seems to be now a lot more traction. And I maybe it's because, you know, we're still under this whole shelter in place COVID or we are starting to expand away from that, uh, that people are spending more time at their homes. Uh, but I mean, why, why focus on IOT? I mean, I know you guys focus on other things, but what, what, what kind of motivated you guys to say, Hey, let's, let's dig a little deeper into IOT. Oh, well, one thing is we really enjoy it. It's just an interesting, um, domain. That's that's a good, that's a good reason. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, you have hardware involved. There's, there's all the different um, systems you, uh, and so there's, you know, the unique challenges with that, with, you know, these communications, there's different teams with different specialties. Um, you get to, you get to work with a lot of smart people. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's, that's really interesting. Um, you know, and like, you know, we have these, you know, so our IHA clients vary from like, um, you know, Sutro, which is a, you know, kind of home consumer play, uh, for, you know, their pool monitoring, but there's also, we work with medical device companies, um, you know, a company called Cerebell who does an EEG device. Um, yeah. And, you know, we've worked with Fitbit of course, and, you know, everybody knows who they are, but, um, and some other, um, companies that do air, uh, quality management and, um, so it kind of runs the gamut. So that's, that's another really, we like that, you know, kind of diversity that while it's still in this one kind of domain, you just have this diversity of different types of products that you um, can learn about um, and, and, you know, kind of keeps life interesting to, 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 to learn about all these different things. Yeah. I mean, in, in definitely the hardware component, <clears throat> excuse me. I mean, hardware is hard <laughs> as I like to say, uh, because a lot could go wrong, but you know, once you get hardware right, then it's mostly a software problem. Um, and I can see that the nice, you know, mix of oh, well, there's a hardware component, a software component, usually a mobile component. I mean, if we just use the Sutro example, there's a smart monitor that floats in your pool. There's a hub. There's an app. There's a backend. There's a recommendation engine. I mean, there's all these things that you know you you guys agree of have helped kind of pull together. Um, and it is a very interesting um, way to think about like how the physical and kind of virtual world kind of come together. Um, and so do, do you see the same thing with more and more IOT products you think are going to hit the market, especially for like the smart home? Or is it going to be kind of a mix of what's, what you've seen so far? Well, I think, you know, the, the IOT market is projected to grow probably in double or triple in the next five years. So, you know, we're just, we're at the very beginning of it, uh, yeah. you know, you're, you're going to have your, which they probably already have some of these, like your smart refrigerator, your smart oven and, you know, whatever, Every, you know, all these, all these different devices in your home that are not connected to the internet right now, which, you know, um, will be, and more broad, you know, and there's, they exist probably uh, very niche right now yeah. for a lot of these products, but it'll yeah. be more, a lot more mainstream yeah. uh, going forward. Uh, and it's just going to, you know, it'll be expected that you can, you know, know what your is in your refrigerator from your, your app on your phone and, and order new groceries that'll get delivered to your door or what have you. Um, and things like that. So, you know, and that, uh, is coming into play. I mean, one of our, you know, we've, we've put out proposals recently for like um, controlling uh, industrial boilers and, um, you know, out there. So like via apps and, and web applications, you know, so they're controlling like the temperature and water pressure and things like that. So it's just like you can, any device that's not connected to the internet right now, um, you know, think of it being connected to the internet because it probably will be. 
Um, and also, you know, and so not even these larger devices, but also sensors, you know, there's, Oh yeah. Lots of sensors. You know, yeah. Yeah. Lots of sensors, you know, detecting, you know, and, and sensors for, um, you know, we've talked to like medical device sensors, you know, that are hooked up to people in hospitals or in, you know, not even in hospitals, maybe even at home mm-hmm. um, and where your doctor can monitor your vitals. Um, but also, you know, sensors in the environment, you measure temperature, you know, humidity, weather type of stuff, or, yeah. you know, um, water demographics and, and things like that. So there's a lot of opportunity, you know, for sensors um, as well. So there's, you know, and, uh, you know, and actuators as well, which are things that control other things. So, yeah, 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 yeah. It's I, I, the reason why I bring this up is that I used to be in the RFID business, um, you know, I'm sure you've heard of those RFIDs and um, yeah. contactless stuff. And I remember this was a decade ago that the big thing that was going to happen was there was going to be RFID tags on everything and you move it in and out of your fridge and it would tell you what's expired and all this sort of stuff. And that's all like gone away because <laughs> RFID is just way too expensive to implement. Uh, but, you know, you see some of these smart um, appliances or like people are using cameras to look at this sort of stuff. Like, you know, Amazon, the Amazon Go store is a great example of a an IoT type um, environment where they know what you're picking up and, they, and, and it's just this kind of a little scary ecosystem, but pretty cool actually how they can use cameras and probably microphones and other sensors to, to see what's going on in the store. So, so yeah. Wow. Cool. Well, you know, uh, Doug, I really appreciate your time. This has been uh wonderful to get to, to talk again. Um, we, we talk occasionally and I know I really wanted to have you on the podcast to sort of not only what you've done and where you've come from, but how, you know, what your thoughts are on sort of the future of IOT in particular, because I agree with you. I think it's going to be huge. And, you know, entrepreneurs trying to take advantage of of a growth market, um, it is a lot harder than just throwing up a website. (laughs) So uh, you do need someone that knows what they're doing. So thanks again. And, uh, you know, we'll be in touch. Yeah, thanks for having me. I hope I was uh, gave some helpful advice for your audience. And, you know, I really enjoyed talking with you today. Yeah. Oh, no, you did. I appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk soon. Okay. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learn something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better, as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur, and frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at The Daily MBA, and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about on this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better.